Well, last week we began a, uh, a series that uh, we've entitled Digging Christmas. It's about digging into the story. And it's not just about digging into the text itself, but it's, it's the text plus uh, the circumstances around the text that make the Christmas story and the story of Jesus a story that we can believe in. Uh, there are a lot of stories that go around at Christmas time, many famous stories, and it's, it's Frosty, it's, it's Rudolph, it's all those shows that, that you look at and you think, oh, those are, those are fun holiday stories. And so we're kind of asking the question, what is it that makes Jesus' story different than those stories? Because there is a difference. Those are purely fiction, uh, imagined in someone's mind and created and told and retold over and over and over again. But the story of Christmas is different than that. And so it's a story that isn't based out of myth. It isn't based out of just someone's creativity. It's a story that is based out of reality. And we kind of want to just use this season to kind of reinforce that in your minds, to say, you know what, as I celebrate the holidays, as I celebrate Christmas, um, this is not just a nice tradition that's been passed down from my grandparents or people before that. It's a tradition, but it's more than that. It's a life-giving, interactive experience with, with events that happened long ago that still make a difference here today. Well, a couple of years ago, the folks at Southland Christian Church put together this little video of, of kids telling this story. And some of you maybe have seen this. You've, you've, some of you, I've seen it on your Facebook pages. But uh, I want to show this with you, to you this morning just as a, as a way of re rehashing that story. Because oftentimes when a story is told, it's, it's all the details around it. It's, it's how it's told. It's who's telling it that makes the difference. And, and I think this illustrates a little bit that we'll, we'll apply here in a second. So go ahead, guys. Mary, she was doing laundry, and then the angel just appeared, and she was really scared. So Gabriel was like, "Mary, you're gonna have what? I can't, I can't say good. Mary, you're gonna have a baby. I, you're gonna have a baby, and you will call him Jesus." And then Mary was like, "I'm not gonna have a baby yet. I'm only a teenager. I'm not married." Then the angel Gabriel told Joseph that Mary is not lying. She, you are having a new baby. And so they met up. They went to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's old town. They ride a donkey. <laughs> I don't know. A camel. Oh yeah, a camel. She said, this donkey's fast. They tried to go to a hotel and they asked the keeper um, for a place to stay. The keeper said, we have no rooms, literally no rooms. So Mary and Joseph walked away sadly, but then he said, the only place in here in Bethlehem that, that you can stay, stay is a staple. And then he just pointed the way and they followed. When the shepherds were taking care of the sheep, then they saw angels. The angel said, a new baby is getting born, who is king of the Jews. The angel was singing. And then the shepherd said, I think we should go there and meet him. The second, I think, said, yeah, I agree with you. And the other said, yeah, me too. They had to walk through a bunch of grass and bushes. 
maybe have to camp out at night. And then the lion heard about it, and then a star appeared. Well, we should probably follow that star. It's pointing down to the barn. So maybe we should follow it. Maybe. So the wise men went to Jesus. They gave them gifts. A stuffed animal, like a hippo one. They have at home. Some diapers, they have some wipes, and some milk, some shoes, some Jordans. Gold ring and Latimer. And I don't know how I would survive in that barn. Too stinky, too crowded, and ugh. I think he probably pooped because the room was very smelly. Thank you for coming. He's adorable. He's gonna be our best friend. I love you, and you're the best baby I ever seen. There, I said it. <laughs> the new baby is gonna change the world. And so the telling of that story has been done millions of times over the course of the last 2,000 years, right? Maybe it's told more traditionally, maybe it's told with a little more fun. Um, but the story has been told, and that last statement that was made that he will change the world is, is true, right? That story has changed the world. And we have to ask the question, why? Why did that story change the world? As you go around the world, why do... Two-sevenths of the people on earth, two billion people, um, claim that Jesus is the guy I'm, I'm following. Why is that the case? Why did, as Tim talked about, the rawness of Christmas, the, uh, just the pure poverty that surrounded Christ, why did that guy, why did his story change the world? Well, I want us to dig into that question today. Um, and in doing so, I want us to think about it from this perspective, that that story changed people, it shaped cultures, it, it sometimes was even hated by some to the extent of persecution, but it's driven people to risk everything to try to share it with others. A couple of weeks ago, there was uh, this story that was pretty popular in the media for a couple of days at least. It was the story of John Allen Chow, um, is this, this young man. He's a 26-year-old young man who had a heart for missions, who, who went to India, and there's an isolated island in India that the people have, there's a law that you can't go there. They don't want to be touched, that people don't want to bother them. And he had a heart to go and share Christ with them. And in the course of doing that, they shot him with an arrow and they killed him. And so there was a great deal of talk immediately after that in the media of, was that guy a hero or was that guy a fool? And it was an interesting conversation to listen to. And, and, I, and I, when I first heard it, I thought, well, there's got to be more to the story. Because originally, the, the story, one of the headlines simply said, search for slain American missionary could wipe out uh, Sentinelese people. In other words, they're just, he's going to take all these diseases. They're all going to die. And, and he's, just, he's a foolish man for doing that. And yet, a couple weeks ago, there was an article as, as time kind of unfolded and people began to get all the facts together. What they find is that whether he was right or wrong, wise or foolish, um, John was not some reckless American just on a, on a vendetta for Jesus. Um, he was a man who had spent years training and preparing and vaccinating and doing all the things that he possibly could do. He had trained himself to go and just live there with the people and eventually to care for their needs and hopefully with the, with the heart to share Christ. And, and this is an extreme example, but what motivates a man to leave the comforts of America to go to a place, to an island where there are no conveniences, what motivates them, him to go to a place like that at risk of his own life, ultimately giving his life when he knew the risk? 
What motivates someone? Again, whether there's wisdom, there's foolish, there's, there's probably a lot of things to be learned from that, but just the theme in general, what motivates that? Well, it's the belief that there's a bigger story at work. It's not just about me. There's this bigger story that starts at Christmas that continues through the life of Jesus that there's this bigger story that motivates us to say, you know what, that life is bigger than just what I can do or what I can have or whatever I can earn or whatever fun I can have. Life is bigger. There's another thing that drives us. There's, a, there's someone that needs to be told, a name that needs to be told to all the peoples of the earth because they need to know the name of Jesus. And so uh, what is it that motivates someone? Why would someone believe the message of the Bible and build their life on it so much so that they would leave everything to go to a place like that? And so last week we asked a simple question in this whole idea of digging Christmas. We asked the question, did Jesus really exist and today I want us to ask the question, the follow-up. We answered yes to the affirmative that through biblical history, through extra-biblical history, you can pretty much make a very strong case that Jesus existed. But building on that then, well then can I trust the story that I read about him? Why should I trust that story? It happened a long time ago. Um, it happened in a place far, far away from any of us. The circumstances and the time period were so different. And so what I want us to think about today is just that question. Can I trust the story that I read and why so? Again, you may come here today. Your mind is already settled on that fact and you give affirmative, I, I, I trust it because it's in the Bible. And those are okay answers. But the culture in which you live is not happy with that answer. They mock that story. They mock that theme. And, and so it's important for us every once in a while just to stop and remind ourselves, this is why I trust this story. Because more and more, this story clashes with culture. Again, go back to that missionary. The, the, the lines of hero versus fool weren't so much what he did. It was the mentality behind it. The world looked at him and said, he's just a foolish, arrogant person who thinks Jesus is, is everything versus the Christian who says, Jesus is everything. And I get it. I may not do it myself, but I get why he would be motivated to do that. And so it oftentimes falls on what do you think about Jesus? And so as a Christian, it needs to be a part of our life that I understand this is why I trust the story. Because you're going to face times and situations where people are not going to understand it. They're not going to appreciate it. In fact, they may call you foolish for believing it. And so why do we believe it? When we ask that question, can I really trust the story that I read in the Bible, especially the New Testament? There are things that we can prove and there are things that we cannot prove. There are things that we can test and we can verify and, and we can use several things we're gonna look at here in a moment that just kind of help us to have confidence in them. And then there's the things that, that as you read the story of Christmas, there's a lot of incredible things going on there, right? Angels appearing to people, uh, girls becoming pregnant uh, without assistance, uh, just all kinds of things that you think, uh, um, is that the PG way of saying that? I don't know. But, uh, I, uh, but the there's all kinds of things in that story that are, are incredible, right? And to a rational mind in our modern world where I only believe the things that I can test in a science lab, then, then we reject that immediately because of the miraculous part of it. And so I can't prove that to people. And so I think it's helpful to be able to say, okay, well, there's this part over here that does require faith. But there's this other part of here of the story that is intentionally written that way to give you evidence, to give you reasons to say, you know what, the people, the Matthews, the Marks, the Lukes, the Johns, all these people as they wrote, they were meticulous to make sure the things that they said, the things that they wrote, the things they recorded for those that would come behind them, that they were verifiable, they were trustworthy, they were true. 
So that when you come to the parts where I think, man, that's incredible. Can I really believe that? Well, I trust him over here. He seems right in all these other places. So at least I can trust the story that I'm being told. And so that's what we want to kind of look at here today. You see, there are things in the Bible such as rulers and census and, and cities and situations in Luke chapter 1 and 2 that are testable, are verifiable. And over time, we live in a place in history where we can kind of look back and, and find a lot of those things have been verified. And so we encourage you last week to begin reading through the Gospel of Luke. Pick a chapter a day. And if you didn't start, start today. Today is the ninth. Just pick Luke chapter 9. And, and you're going to end up with the, at the end of the story of Jesus right there at Christmas time. But there was a story that I read this week in Luke chapter 5, uh, whatever day the 5th was, that um, I, I went back and as I read it, I found that Jesus does exactly what we're going to talk about here. He uses something that can be witnessed and seen to prove something that is unseen, that he's making a claim about. And it goes like this in Luke chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 and following, it says, behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And so they lowered this man into the, in front of Jesus in, in this house. goes on to say, when they saw, and when he saw their faith, he said, and note this is where Jesus is doing more than the story. The guy just wanted to walk again, right? But Jesus uses this story to show something even bigger about himself. Note he says and says, man, you've worked hard to get here, so get up and walk. You're healed. What does he say? Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees, rightly so, began to question, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They asked the right question, and that's exactly why Jesus says it. Because Jesus wants them to think so highly of him that he even has the right, the authority to forgive your sin. Now, if I was to come to you and say, hey, I, I kept, I've been keeping a list this year and I know what you've been naughty and I know when you've been nice, but I got the naughty list and, and I can forgive you. I forgive you for all those things you've done wrong. If I said that to you, that would be meaningless. First, you'd all think, you're nosy, you quit stalking me. But then you would think, that's meaningless. That doesn't mean anything because my sin doesn't affect you. You are in no place to be able to forgive sin. But as we're gonna see here in a few weeks, but all sin ultimately is against God. All sin it really goes back to disobeying God. And so God alone is in a position to say to you or to me, I can forgive that. I forgive you for what you did against me. And so Jesus comes claiming, I am in that place. That I can forgive your sins. And so they're just aghast at the thought that Jesus would claim to be that kind of man. And so verse 22, it says, Jesus perceived their thoughts, and he answered them, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? And so we asked the question, one of these is verifiable, I can say to this man, rise and walk, and that's something we can see and observe, or I can say to you, your sins are forgiven, and, and nothing changes in the room, that's an inside thing, right, that's a soul level thing. And so he says, you know what, I can't prove to you in some tangible way that I'm forgiving sins, but watch what I can do. He goes on to say, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
Immediately he did rise before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And so Jesus uses a visible thing. Everybody in that room saw this lame man get up, walk, carry his mat out the room. And that built confidence in the invisible thing. It helped them to understand, that, you know what, just as he can do this, he has authority to be able to deal with our sin. And so Jesus used something they could see to give evidence that the unseen was true and trustable. And Jesus claimed some incredibly bold things if you read his story. And so what are some of the qualities that help us to be able to trust his story? What are the visible things? What are the tangible things that sometimes we can look at and say, hey, uh, this stuff over here, that's an outlandish claim to be God, to do all these things that someday we'll all stand before him. Those are bold claims. But what are some of the more tangible things that, that kind of support that? Say, you know what? I may have, I struggle with these, or your friends may struggle with these, but, but what about these tangible things? If I can trust God in these things, then that certainly builds at least a step towards faith and the other things. But if there's issues and contradictions and problems with the text or with, with the witnesses, then, then I can't even believe that, let alone someone claiming to be God. And so I just want to give you four of them and add them all up and see where we come to. And there's others we could do with this, but, uh, but I chose these four for the sake of time. Um, but I think they also fit a nice timeline. If you were to map out where Jesus began to today, uh, I think they're those the kind of things that kind of help us uh, along the way. And so, what are some of the qualities of the New Testament story of Jesus that give us reasons to trust it? The first one is this. Number one, um, I trust it because of first-person witnesses. First-person witnesses. As you read the New Testament, what you find is that the New Testament is written, and it constantly makes statements. It invites you as a reader to verify it invites you in to test this, check this out, see if I'm right, okay? Now, you and I are, are far removed time-wise, and so we're not the first readers of their letters or of their, of their documents, but they're constantly inviting those in the first century that they wrote to that, to say, you can go check this out, right? And they give all these details and ideas and facts and perspectives as if they are writing from a first-person witness perspective, and so the New Testament always appeals to this aspect of our faith. It works hard to remind you that the story of Christ is not some fairy tale invented outside of history. It, is in, it invites you in to check the things that were being said. Let me give you some examples. Uh, many of the New Testament writers do this. Most of them do, all, actually. Luke, we read this passage last week. It's kind of the, the foundational passage of our series here. Luke chapter 1, he says this, that many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In other words, they were there. They watched it. They saw it. All right, it goes on to say, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And again, as you read Luke's gospel, if you were to focus just on that, and if we were to pick out all the details of names, government officials, places, events, things that he, he puts a timestamp in his book to say, you know what, I'm, I'm doing my very best to make sure everything I write is accurate and true, okay? And so if we can trust Luke in that, that builds our confidence. People trust him in the things that, that are harder to believe sometimes uh, about Jesus for some people. And so think about that eyewitness statement. Um, 
Matthew and Mark, excuse me, Matthew and John were disciples of Jesus, right? And so you read their story and, and you read Matthew's gospel. Uh, it comes as you would expect Matthew to be, a good Jewish man. He's writing from a Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience, using all kinds of Jewish Old Testament messianic references to build a case for why Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Luke comes to us, excuse me, John does the same thing. He, he ties in a lot of those things for, for a little bit later. He writes a little bit later. Um, Mark um, wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, the whole of it, but he certainly, history tells us that he was with Peter. And so he's writing down Peter's preaching and his teaching, his testimony about Jesus. And so he writes from Peter's perspective. Luke writes from probably Paul's perspective, as, he, as we'll see in a moment, was a companion of Paul, traveled with him, journeyed, met all kinds of people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus, and he wrote his, his gospel based upon that for more of a Gentile audience. And so you read them and you read these books and they are written from the perspective of eyewitness perspectives. And so think about some of these people and what they would later write about Jesus. Peter would say this in his second book, 2 Peter chapter 1. He would say this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's a powerful statement, right? Peter is aware of the challenges that people are making, right? And again, understand where they're coming from. Jesus claims to have died and risen again, right? That's not an easy thing. You and I accept that because we've known about Jesus, most of us, for a long time. And so that's, that's an accepted fact. But if, if that had never happened and someone claimed that, there would be skepticism. You would think, well, that can't have happened. That doesn't happen. In my experience, dead people tend to stay dead forever, right? And so there's a challenge, uh, a faith challenge to that. And so Peter is aware of that when he says, look, we didn't invent this. We didn't make this up. We're just telling you what we saw. He goes on to say, for when we received honor and glory, when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and he takes us to the scene of Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus kind of reveals his glory to his disciples with Peter, James, and John, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. John. Again, one of Jesus' disciples, at the beginning of his letter, 1 John chapter 1, he, he again takes you from just not something that you want you to read about, but something that was experienced in real life, in real time. That which was from the beginning, which our eyes have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life, Jesus, was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testify to you and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, John is writing the perspective of this was real, right? We walked with this guy. We talked with this guy. We ate with this guy. Um, we were with him. Um, um, verse three of that passage goes on to say this. That which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you so that you all too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship was with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So part of that faith in Jesus is this testimony, right? Paul um, comes along a little bit later, but he writes this in 1 Corinthians 15 about the importance of this eyewitness part of this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day. So that's the gospel, right? So what is that gospel based on what's it tied to it's tied with he appeared 
to Cephas and then to the 12. He goes on to say, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at, the, at one time, most of whom are still alive. Again, he is inviting them to verify this. Go find those people. Talk to them. If you don't believe me, I'll, I'll give you a list of folks who were there. Talk to them. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, in other words, he showed up late to the party, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so Peter, Paul, John, all these people are just inviting you in. This was not some invention. This was something that happened in real life, and, and they were blessed by it. Luke, uh, again, and if you read the book of Acts, Luke wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. There's kind of dual companions of the life of Christ and, and the work that Jesus did through the apostles after he left. In Acts chapter 16, Luke is writing this just from a, a, an observer's perspective, a distant observer, other people's testimony for a long time. But then all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 16, the personal pronouns change. Nobody says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought, we, note that little personal pronoun, we, not he, but we, sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, and note as we read this second verse, all the different time references and place references that are verifiable. We made a direct voyage. In other words, we had a direct flight. We didn't have to get connecting flights. We just went straight there to Samothrace. And the following day, he's got a time, he's got a calendar to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So what you begin to find is that people, as they begin to study Luke's gospel, they begin to look for those times and places. Did those people really exist? And for a long time, some of these places were in doubt. Um, but as we'll see in a moment, archaeology continues to, to find these things and these places and these names that verify that Luke was very detailed and he was very correct in what he said. And so you can find these things that for a part of, of the book of Acts, Luke is a part of the journey. He's traveling with Paul. He goes to Jerusalem with Paul and, and he's interviewing people and making, making his notes as he goes. And so when you read the Gospels, you read the letters that come along afterwards, the New Testaments, I think the very beginning of confidence is that they are written as if they are first-person witnesses. That doesn't settle it, but that's a beginning place. Now, people will question that, though. Maybe, maybe they're just inventing this. Maybe they just came up with a story later. In fact, if um, I looked for a scholarly thing, but most of you probably, if, you, if you're aware of Dan Brown, Dan Brown is, a, is an author. He writes lots of religious-themed books. His first and probably most popular one was The Da Vinci Code. Maybe uh, his books are actually intriguing to read, but they're not a good place to base your, your theology and your foundation for your life on. He would say this in The Da Vinci Code about the Bible, that the Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven, the Bible is the product of man, my dear, uh, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. In other words, he's saying, you know what? What we have now is nothing like where it began. And that's the, that's the constant challenge to the Bible, to its text, that, that, yeah, Jesus probably was a historical figure, but there's this big time gap that evolved between when Jesus lived and then later in the first century, second century, the, the power-hungry church got together, added in, the divinity, added in the divinity of Jesus, added in the resurrection, added on all these things in order to be able to hold power. So you've got to follow Jesus because this is who he is. And that's what he's claiming there when he, when he says that. History has never had a def definitive version of the book. And I couldn't say that I disagree with the statement more than that one. Because that leads to the second thing. The first partners and witnesses are, are important, but you add to that the first century authorship 
and what you find is this. We looked at this last week. Um, we asked the question, did Jesus really exist? And we found this Roman historian by the name of Cornelius Tacitus, um, who again, I'll read this for you again in case you weren't here last week, but it said this. This is a Roman person talking about the historical person of Jesus Christ. It says, consequently, to get rid of the report, again, remember, Nero had burned Rome down, Rome down and people were really angry at, at, at Nero because he burned the city, and so he needed a scapegoat. And guess who was in the city? This vulnerable, lower-class group of people called Christians. So Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, again, talking about the resurrection, thus checked for the moment, again, broke out not only in Judea, the source of all the evil, but even in Rome. And so if you were to map these events out, Jesus lived, died about 30 AD, Nero was ruling about 60, early 60s AD, you've got a 30-year time map, right? I've got a map for you. I want you to look at here with me. There's Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, and look how far Rome is, right? And that little purple section is kind of the, the world of that day. And so what the critics of Scripture say is that Jesus was just, the story was changed after 100 years ago, and he became something more than he was, right? Some of you understand that. My basketball career is incredible the more I tell the story, because it gets better with the telling as years and distance from the actual events and the embarrassment that it was um, are, are, are removed, right? The story gets better. Some of you have fish stories, deer stories, other things like that, um, about that. But that's exactly the opposite of what's happening here that you've got from the time that Jesus lived, died, rose again, to 30 years, travel 1,400 miles by plane directly there to Rome, versus not the 2,400 miles if you take their long routes, you've got a population of Christians within 30 years that are already believing that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. The reason that people in Rome know the name of Jesus is because the story was not changed. The story was already there. The story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection were what was driving these Christians. And as persecution came, it scattered them like a grease fire, right? They just went everywhere. And everywhere they went, they thought it was important enough to take the good news of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection with them. All right, that's a sermon in and of itself, but, but just the idea that when you hear people talk about the story was changed and, 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 and revised later, that it's not, doesn't fit history, because history shows us that very early on within the first, I mean, in Judea, it happened immediately, but even the Roman Empire was aware of the spread of Christianity within a decade, two decades, as it continued to, 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 to traverse the empire as Christians were spread for different reasons. And so you add first-person witnesses, first-century authorship, you add faithful transmission, won't spend long with this one, but... The idea of what one of Dan Brown's quotes is that the, the Bible has changed. We, have, we don't have a, a defined version of what it was in the beginning. And I just want to show you a chart because everybody loves charts, right? Um, I know you don't, but I'm going to show you one anyway because it illustrates the point here. Um, this idea that manuscript evidence for ancient writings, right? There was all these ancient documents. I won't bore you with all of them. 
Um, but Homer's Iliad, that's not a Simpsons reference for some of you people who didn't study history but watched TV. Homer, the Iliad, it was written in 900 BC. The earliest copy was 400 BC, 500 year gap between the original and copy. Um, and then we have 643 copies of that, right? So we trust that Homer's Iliad is a document that really was because we have 643 copies of it that go back to that. And so you can trace through history and if the story is constantly changing, Every hundred years, then you know you, you've got problems there. But look at the Bible, the New Testament, written from 400 to 100 AD. Uh, the latest is 100, probably 90s, but a better word there. Earliest copy is 125 AD. Some people would say it's even earlier than that now. There's a time span of just 20 to, 20 to 50 years in the lifetime of people who lived it and saw it and who knew about it. But look at the number of manuscripts that you can trace through history. 24,000 copies, right? So you can go back and say, well, does my New Testament read like it originally did? And you can go back 100 years, find manuscripts that say the same thing. Go back 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, 500 years, 600 years, 700 years. Go back almost 1,900 years, and you find the text saying the same thing that it says now. And so you add eyewitness testimony. You add first century authorship that the people that were writing the things that you're reading now were still in the time period of Jesus when it could have been contradicted and shot down and shut down if they were lying Number four, dig findings in the dirt. This is where the shovel illustration came from to begin with. The whole idea of archaeology, and we won't go there much, but um, just let me show you a headline um, from a couple weeks ago that popped up. This little story, the ring of Roman governor Pontius Pilate who crucified Jesus found in a Herodian site in West Bank. And I'm sure that some of you, if that pops up on your morning news feed, you're just dying to go read that article, I know. Um, but it's an interesting thing because for a long time the critics said there's no mention in history of Pontius Pilate. We don't know if he even existed. The Bible is the only place that says it. But then as people begin to dig around in old places and in old things, they find things. And all of a sudden, the ring that they found 40, 50 years ago, that they finally figured out a better way to, to identify the letters and things, and, and they find it's a, it's a ring that re references Pontius Pilate. And other things, in the Gospel of Luke, um, I've got a long list, but breakfast is waiting for you, but a long list of things that, that go through Luke's Gospel and just say the times when people in the past have said, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. We can't verify any of these times and places. Um, but what you find is that time after time, whether it's the census that for a long time, that, that it's the whole basis of the Christmas story, go back to Bethlehem, everybody has to go back to their home, hometowns. And people thought for the longest time, first of all, Quirinius, the governor, he, he reigned too late because Herod died early and Quirinius that they knew about lived much later. But what they find is that they find history that says there's another Quirinius who lived, who reigned earlier that would have been in the right place at the right time. The idea of, well, nobody ever sent anybody back to their hometowns for a census. And you find Egyptian documents that talk about the Roman Empire doing that on a regular basis. And again, time and, and, and evidence begins to pile up and it continues to verify the things that Luke and others wrote about. And, and so... All that to say, and that's a lot, and we could go deeper in probably all of those things, but uh, I have bored you long enough. And so um, here's what I want to finish with, all right? I bet you have walked into, if you're a parent, you have walked into your kid's room and you've seen the hurricane devastation, and you asked the question, what happened here, right? Or maybe you've come upon a, a scene, maybe there's been an accident, maybe some terrible thing's going on, you're thinking, what happened here? 
Because you look at the evidence, and you look that everything is an upheaval, everything has changed, everything is different, and you just ask, the, the obvious answer to your question is, what happened here? Something happened here. And so, you go back to the Bible, and you begin to add together first-person witnesses, first-century authorship, the, the people who saw it, wrote about it, faithful transmission, that the same things they wrote are the same things you're still reading today, and just the findings in the dirt that begin to say, hey, we didn't think Luke knew what he was talking about, but over and over we find that Luke knew exactly what he was talking about because he was alive and he was writing it as he, as he lived it. And I think all of that, I hope, equals a greater confidence in what happened in and through the life of Christ. There's a greater confidence to be able to say, you know what, something significant happened in those 30, that 30 AD range. There was nothing. Jesus was a nobody from a nowhere place. And all of a sudden, this explosion happens in history. And there are people who go everywhere telling about this Jesus who lived like no one had ever lived. And he died an unfair and unjust death. But he rose again. And so we worship him. We honor him. We suffer. We testify. We live for him. Why that change? Because something significant happens. And when you and I open up your Bible, when you open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you begin to read those stories, we get a picture that something unlike anything that we'd ever seen or before or since happens. And so I hope as you begin to put little pieces like that together in your minds, and as you celebrate Christmas, I hope it's, it's full of emotion, it's full of a lot of good things, but I also hope it's full of a reminder of the truth of the story that you and I tie our lives to because it's our hope, it's our significance, it's our life. And when that story begins to take hold of our life, I hope people will look at your life and they'll ask, what happened here? In a good way, not in a bad way, but in a good way, what happened here? Because your life is different than other people's lives. And that's what Jesus will do for us is we have confidence in him and the story that we celebrate. Would you pray with me, please?